The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So this morning is our fifth and final message in the Anatomy of Relationships series. And we have been studying what it means to be rightly related to God and specifically focused on what are the differences between religion and relationship. And so far, we have asked four specific questions. Question number one is, what are we trying to achieve in the relationship? Question number two, why are we in the relationship at all? Question number three, what defines our relationship with God? And question number four, what competes with our relationship with God? So the first question gave us the goal of the relationship. The goal is to know Christ. The second question gave us the motivation of the relationship. Circumstances may get our attention, but the gospel must become our motivation. The third question gave us the nature of the relationship. Our relationship with God is defined by love and made possible only by the righteousness of Christ. And the fourth question gave us the competition of the relationship. Competition is anything that interferes with or takes precedence over our relationship with God. As we finish the series this morning, we are asking one final question. What do we gain from our relationship with God? The Apostle Paul was very clear in Philippians chapter 3 about everything that he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The question becomes, what did he gain with Christ? That is about the benefits. Now, somebody might say, well, Paul, that's extremely easy. We gain forgiveness of sins and eternal life and heaven when we die. And I would say you're absolutely right. We do gain all of those things. However, I want you to see this morning, the benefits do not end there. And for that matter, the benefits don't even begin there. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven are all incredible benefits of knowing God, but they don't describe the process, the transformation that God takes us through, nor do they talk about the theological components that make any of this possible. Without that understanding, we still miss the fullness and the depths of what relationship with God is all about. We get glimpses without saying the full picture. Today, I want us to get a more full picture of the redemptive work of God in our life. So I'm going to give five theological truths this morning that undergird your relationship with God. They are defining marks between religion and relationship, as well as each of these truths answers one of the deepest needs of humanity, and I will point those out as we go through. So if you're not already with me in this, go over to Philippians chapter number three. We will be once again in verses seven through 11. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, the benefits of relationship. Since we have now studied the same text for the last four weeks, we're not going to reread the text again this morning, but we will pray, and after we pray, then we will read the text as we go along with the next section from there. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would give us incredible focus and discernment in this. We recognize that there are some deep, deep truths that we're going to get into today, But I pray that you take the things that are incredibly complex and make them so simple that we can all pick them up and see exactly where they fit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Philippians chapter 3, it describes this dramatic exchange in Paul's life. If your Bibles are open, look in verses 7 and 8, and you're going to find the words loss and the words gain mentioned multiple times within those two verses. Basically, he was saying everything that he gained in his previous life, 
he now considers to be a loss in this new life. Now, he's not saying that being Jewish was a deficit or that there was anything wrong with the law itself. What he is saying is that whenever he counted on those things to make him right with God, it took him further away from God than what it did bringing him towards God. Also, you'll notice in this exchange, the things he lost and the things that he gained, that the tone of his writing is not, look at everything I gave up for Christ. The tone of his writing is, look at all that I have gained with Christ. So, I'm going to focus this morning on the benefits. We're, we're looking at this, asking the question, what did we gain with Christ? Here's truth number one that is in your notes. We gain our true identity by knowing Jesus. We gain our true identity by knowing Jesus. Now, we've already covered part of this in previous messages, so let's just kind of give a very, very quick recap of that. That is, Paul has released all of his past religious achievements, and he has said that all of those things he has now counted as loss for the gain of knowing Christ. He talks about this gain as being a surpassing value, and we said that surpassing value is greater value, it is supreme value. We also talked about the word know or the word knowing. It means a personal, intimate knowledge of someone. So that's what we've covered already. But he adds something now in verse number nine. He spoke of being found in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is what's referred to as an identification truth. We find in Scripture, the New Testament tells us that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Our identity is found in Him. So the phrase, in Him, or in Christ, or in the Beloved, is used by the Apostle Paul over 75 times in his writing to describe this new identity that we have. That is, we are a new creation in Christ. There's that phrase again, in Christ. And the only way for us to know who we really are is first to know who he really is, because our identity is found in him. Now, identity addresses one of those deep longings of humanity. People crave meaningful identity. We spend our entire lives sometimes trying to answer the question, who am I? Talk to a college student and ask them, what are you trying to do in college right now? What's your focus? And many times they'll say something like this, I'm just trying to find myself. Or go and talk to someone who maybe they are an empty nester and they're now trying to discover what is my identity apart from children in the house. Or maybe talk to somebody who is retired from maybe 40 or 50 years in a specific career and ask that person, who are you? And watch them begin to try to piece together their identity apart from their career. Because so many times we have now built our identity around the things that are temporary, the things that are changing. So we see that people try to build their identity around the jobs that they hold or the addictions that they face or their station in life or for some people, even their sexual identity or sexual preference. All of those are faulty foundations for understanding your identity. You are not what you do, and that is your career. You are not who you're with, that is relationships. You are not what you have done, that is your past and your mistakes and your sin. You are who God says you are. That is where your true identity comes from. For those who are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, their identity is now found in him. And that identity does not change based on circumstances or time. Here's the second benefit that we gain. 
We gain justification through the righteousness of Jesus. We gain justification through the righteousness of Jesus. It says in verse number 9, Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. All right, so every eye this direction. If I lose you here, I'm going to lose you for about 10 minutes. And then you're going to resurface and say, I have no idea how we got here. So here's, here's what I want you to see. In Scripture, the term righteousness is often used in a legal sense, not necessarily a moral one. A judge would declare someone to be righteous. Now, in the ideal situation, the person was actually righteous too. But that's not necessarily the case. The focus was on what the judge said. What is the verdict of the judge? So through Judaism, as well as in Christianity, the pressing question has always been, what can I do so that the righteous judge, who is God, will declare me to be righteous? And in Judaism, that was answered with, keep the law of Moses. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul had been trying to do for his entire life. But here's the issue with that. The law can help a person gain a sense of morality. The law can help a person gain a level of self-righteousness. But the law cannot take away past offenses or enable a person to walk in righteousness. That's what the Apostle Paul found. Without righteousness, it is impossible for a person to gain justification. And they need justification in order to gain salvation. The law was never given as a way to make a person right with God. The law was given to show how perfect he is and how sinful we are. The law was given so that it would show us that we cannot do it ourselves and it would lead us into desperation so that we would go to God in faith saying, you have to do it for me. Scripture tells us no one is righteous. The reason that's important is because if God is to judge us from the sense of morality, none of us would ever be declared righteous because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all messed up. Since we cannot achieve moral righteousness by keeping the law, we need to be declared judicially righteous by the righteous judge who is God. We need God to say something to us, to do something for us, so that we are now declared as righteous. There is a theological term for this. It is the word impute, I-M-P-U-T-E. Now, Wayne Grudem, a Christian theologian, gave this definition. To impute is to think of as belonging to someone and therefore cause it to belong to that person. Now, hold that part of the definition right there. Uh, this idea of impute is to lay upon or to count towards or to reckon to somebody else's account. So, let's pick back up in Wayne Grudem's definition. To impute is to think of as belonging to someone and therefore cause it to belong to that person. In justification, God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and so relates to us on this basis. End of quote. This is good truth. Here is the picture that happens with this word impute. That is... On the cross, our sin was imputed to Christ. It was laid upon Christ. 
it was reckoned to his account. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, who, he made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become, what is it? The righteousness of God in him. There's that word righteousness again. So we were spiritually bankrupt. Jesus was spiritually rich. We were sinful. He was sinless. He didn't die for his sins. He died for ours. So from a judicial sense, our sin was credited to his account. What's the wages of sin? Death. That's why he died for us. Our sin has been credited to his account. He died to pay our sin debt. But listen, there's another side of the equation. That is, at salvation, Christ's righteousness is now imputed to us. It is laid on us. It is credited to our account. To be righteous means to be in right standing with God, to be fully accepted by him. So Paul is saying in verse number nine, I don't have a righteousness of my own derived from the law. In other words, I am not in right standing and fully accepted by God because I kept the law. But he tells you how he is in right standing. He then says, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God, the righteous judge, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He's saying, I am in right standing with God. I am fully accepted by God, not because of what I did, but because of what he did and now imputed to my account. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, this truth is amazing. It's, it's the basis of justification. That's another one of those theological terms that people get afraid of. But justification simply means that God sees us just as though we had never sinned. So Jesus never sinned. And now as you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as the Father sees us, he sees us just as though we have never sinned. He sees us as justified. We went, this, this is why we sing, this is why we praise God, this is, this is why there should be joy in the heart of every single Christian, this is why it's not just dead religion, here it is, we went from spiritually bankrupt to spiritually rich, we went from drenched in sin to dressed in righteousness. And yes, you and I still sin, and we are not perfect in a moral sense, but we are perfect in a judicial sense. That is, God the Father sees us and declares us as being completely righteous because of what Christ has done. Now, this truth is one that settles another deep longing of humanity. It's the need for forgiveness. We all mess up. We all sin. We all fall short. Living with the weight of every mistake you've ever made will be overwhelming. So people around the globe have been asking the question, how can I be forgiven? How can the past mistakes and problems be removed? For the person who is rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, they are fully forgiven fully justified, fully righteous because of what Christ has done for them. That's a good benefit. 
number three in this, we gain unlimited power through the resurrection of Jesus. Unlimited power. He says in verse number 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, this is not superhero Marvel comic type of power. You have not been bitten by a spiritual spider and now suddenly acquire some incredible powers and and you're not forced to walk a lonely life using your powers for good. That storyline has already been taken. This story is even better than that. The Apostle Paul has already mentioned in verse 8 that at salvation, he now experienced knowing Christ on a deep, intimate level. But he says, I want to know him more. But he's very specific in this. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. You see, the Apostle Paul understood there was no power in the law. He understood that the law could tell him right from wrong, but the law could not enable him to do what was right. He also knew that there was no power in his flesh to overcome sin or to serve God the way he wanted to serve him. He tells us that in Romans 7. But because he knew Christ intimately, because he gained Christ personally, because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to his account, Because the Holy Spirit of God now indwells him. He understood that the resurrection power of Christ is indwelling him. And Jesus' resurrection revealed his absolute power over the physical as well as the spiritual realm. Colossians 2 and 1 Peter 3. Paul experienced Christ's resurrection power at salvation. How did that happen? That is, God took someone who was spiritually dead... And he breathed life into them. Resurrection power, salvation. But the Apostle Paul has also experienced the resurrection power of Christ at sanctification. That is the ongoing process of becoming like Christ. It is Christ's resurrection power that enables believers to walk in newness of life, to be victorious in temptation, to hold up under trials, to live in a state of holiness. It is the resurrection power of Christ that allows us to fruitfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this truth addresses another need of humanity. It's the need for improvement. We have this innate desire to always improve our situation. In fact, it is this innate desire that makes people always want to improve their situation financially. Have you ever noticed how people who are even extremely wealthy, it's still not enough? We always want more. It is this desire for improvement that makes people want to improve their house. That's the reason Home Depot and Lowe's are actually in existence Because everybody's like, you know what? This is old. This is outdated. I need to improve it. I need to expand upon it. I need to do something different. It is this desire for improvement that is at the heart of what we want for our kids. We don't want them to stay at a level where they are suffering. We want them to improve. We want them to grow. We want them to get better. It's the desire for improvement that makes a person desire to have better health or to kind of up their station in life or to have their character changed. Have you ever had one of those moments when you're in a conversation and you say exactly what's on your mind? It's a zinger. You're like, man, that actually came out. And like two seconds later, you're saying, I shouldn't have said that. And then when you're thinking about that, you're like, that's not who I want to be. Do you know why? 
Because inside of humanity, even when it's an issue of character, we want to know that things can improve. We, we want to know that where we are today is not the defining mark, that God can continue to grow us, that he can continue to prove that there can be betterment that is happening within us. That is a part of the innate desire that God has given. So for those who are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, they are empowered by God to experience the abundant life. He brings changes where they desperately desire changes, and God doesn't just polish up the old. He he makes us completely new. That's a benefit to those in Christ. Here's number four. We gain an empathetic companion through the suffering of Jesus. We gain an empathetic companion through the suffering of Jesus. In verse 10, Paul said he wanted to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. What does that mean? You're not going to like it, but I'll share it with you anyway. To know Jesus is to know suffering. Jesus is referred to as grief's acquaintance in Isaiah 53.3. There was no one who has understood suffering more than him. We find that he endured physical suffering at his arrest and physical suffering on the cross we understand that he also went through emotional and spiritual suffering as he wept over Jerusalem and as he wept over his friend Lazarus as he was dead, as well as when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass for me. He went through such emotional turmoil that literally it says he sweated drops of blood. He knows suffering. In fact, you cannot adequately tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of suffering. He knows it that deeply. So for Paul, his desire to know Jesus was greater than his desire for personal comfort. Said differently, he was willing to endure, endure temporary discomfort for the greater reward of knowing Christ. Did you know that's how all deep desire works? You are willing to endure temporary suffering, hardship, affliction, because you see the reward of something greater on the other side. You see, it's the deep desire for physical health that means you're willing to endure the pain of exercise more than the comforts of your couch. It is this deep desire for nutritional health that means you are willing to endure the nappiness of things like celery Instead of enjoying the joys of cake, you're, you're willing to give up something for a period of time because you see the greater reward. It is that deep desire for financial freedom that means that you're willing to restrict your current spending so that you can experience greater opportunity in the future. That's how deep desire works. And Paul is saying to know Jesus is to know suffering. But I want to know him so much that if it means to know him only comes through suffering, God, I'm willing to experience the suffering. If to know him means that there's pain, I'm willing to go through the pain. If to know him 
means that I have to experience loss to be able to experience what he has gone through, then God, I am willing to go through loss because that's how bad I want to know him. Here's a question for you. Do you want to know him that bad? Because to know Jesus is to know suffering. Let me pause here for just a moment. Do you know how most of us want to get to know God? In a really awesome, quiet time. Like up in the mountains, snow outside, fire in the fireplace, sitting with our Bible, good cup of coffee off on the side. And we just want to sit there with our Bible open, and we want the truths of God to just come off the page and change us from the inside out. Did you know you can learn a lot about God in that setting? But you know how he makes those truths come to home in your life? Pain, problems, discomfort, issues. In fact, it is through those painful moments that you find out whether or not the thing you amend on Sunday is something you really believe in on Monday afternoon. It's in those moments with God that you find out, is it worth it? Because when you say, I want to know him, and he says, really? How bad do you want to know me? God, I want to know you. Are you sure? Yes, I want to know you. Okay. And all of a sudden, he allows things to begin to happen in your life, and there's discomfort, and there's pain, and there's problems. And what he's doing is he is forcing you to lean into him deeply, because to know him is to know suffering. To know him is to walk through pain. To know him is to walk through problems. So it's in those problems that he becomes our life, and the truths of Scripture become awakened inside of us. And when we're going through the problems, we look up at God, and we say, God, what are you doing to us? And he's saying, I'm just answering your prayers. You said you want to know me? Here's how you get to know me. The apostle Paul said, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Did you know resurrection, suffering, and death, none of those sound like happy events. To know him and the power of his resurrection means something has to die first. Do you want to know him that bad? For the person who wants to know him at that level, I want you to hear this great truth. You have a partner, a companion who understands suffering. When you're going through a difficulty and you're walking through that situation, just know Jesus knows what you're going through. The Apostle Paul had been beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and forgotten by friends and left for dead. He faced perils and hardship and loss and grief. He knew suffering, but as he was going through the suffering, he knew he had a companion who understood what he was going through. Have you ever gone through a difficult time and you want to find somebody else who's gone through the same thing? That's human nature. We, we use little phrases like misery loves company. So that person, they want to find someone who's gone through this. If it's the death of a spouse or if it's the death of a parent, we want to talk to somebody who has experienced the same thing because we feel like if you've been down that road, you can help minister to me in this time of need. With the apostle Paul, he says, I got a companion who knows he knows suffering. He knows hurt. He knows pain. He knows problems. He's been through every bit of that. And he is the constant companion of those who are in Christ. It answers another deep 
truth, a deep need for each of us. That's the need for comfort. Life brings pain. People die. Tragedies occur. Sickness and disease distort God's creation. And people wonder in those moments, is there any hope? Does anybody understand? For those who are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, you have a companion through the suffering. He not only knows, he brings peace and he brings healing to those who are hurting. Here's the fifth one, and we close out quickly. We gain glorification to the finished work of Jesus. In verse number 11, it says, In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A a fifth benefit that we gain in Christ is the guarantee of future resurrection when we share in Christ's glory. Romans 8, 17, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. The phrase here, the resurrection from the dead, is literally translated the out-resurrection from among the corpses. Now, when exactly does that occur? 1 Corinthians 15 says, We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What that's saying is, believers will be taken out from amongst the dead, and the rest will be raised at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, that truth answers another deep need of humanity, the need to know about eternity. The question, what happens when we die? For those who are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, death is not the end. It is the next step into the presence of God, that you might know him more, that you might see him more fully and more clearly. So let's bring all these pieces back together because there is a massive theological chain that we've now presented. Verse 8 is identification. Verse 9 is justification. Verse 10 is sanctification. Verse 11 is glorification. It's the same four words that we find focused upon over in Romans chapter 8. Here's what it says in that text. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That is sanctification. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Called into what? Called into relationship with Christ. That is identification. In these whom he called, he also justified. That is justification. In these whom he justified, he also glorified. That is glorification. So he gets to the end of this beautiful sequence of theological terms. And now he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? It is this theological sequence that gives us that boldness in Christ. It gives us confidence in the face of opposition. If God has done all of that to bring us into right relationship with him, why are we afraid about anything? Why are we concerned about what people say? Why are we afraid about circumstances? Because that same God moved heaven and earth to bring you into relationship with him. And that God is not going to let you go until he's done with you. And that God's not going to step down and there's nobody who's going to be able to beat him. So he's saying, what do we say to these things? Why are we concerned about these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? 
That's why we can be excited in relationship. You don't get that in religion. Do you know what you get in religion? A list of rules that you're trying to do as best as you possibly can, hoping one day it's good enough to impress God. But God's already told us that our best, our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to his perfection and holiness. The only way we have a sense of peace, the only way we can fully experience this relationship is because of what Jesus has done for us. So we just spent five weeks in one text. And let me just say, we did not exhaust that text. We could preach another five. We could preach another ten out of this exact same text. What I want you to think is this is not the end of relationship. I pray that this will be the beginning of a stronger relationship, a relationship that you understand more of what Jesus has done for you, a relationship where you're able to sit in and relish and thank God for what he has done on your behalf. My prayer for you is the same as my prayer for myself, and that is the same that the Apostle Paul had. Oh, that we may know him. Know him. Not know about him, that we may know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would give us that desire to not just go through the spiritual motion of things, but God, give us the desire to deeply know you. Help us to walk in the fullness of this relationship, seeing exactly what you have done, and, and taking the time to thank you and to appreciate all the details. God, we know that the only reason we have an opportunity to worship is because of what you've done for us. So Lord, may you take us deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship that we might know you more and more and more every day. In Jesus' name, amen.